0: H.R. McMaster is a retired U.S. Army Lieutenant General who served as the 25th National Security Advisor from 2017 to 2018. He's also known for his prominent roles in the Gulf War and Operation Desert Storm. He's now a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution. H.R., history and the past have always played an important role in your life, um, as you have a PhD in American history and you've also taught history at uh, West Point. But before we come on to those periods in your life, please tell us who um, taught you history and and where did your uh, interest derived from.
1: Andrew, it's so great to be with you. It, really, it was my mother. My mother was a teacher and a phenomenal teacher. She taught in the school district of Philadelphia for almost 40 years. And you know she, she cultivated in me a curiosity about history by visiting historical sites, battlefields, and of course, in Philadelphia, the cradle of our republic, to Constitutional Hall, which is a great display of historical documents. there's a new museum of the American Revolution there that which is not uh, had not been there as I was growing up. but of course Independence Hall and uh, and, and all of the historical sites in Philadelphia, Benjamin Franklin's home. <laughs> these are areas that kindled my interest in history. And then I read biography voraciously,
0: as I still do, especially Andrew Roberts' biographies. (laughs) Uh, No, you're not allowed. We might have to edit that out of the recording, actually, HR. But but, uh, thank you. Um, The PhD thesis that you wrote at uh, University of North Carolina at uh, Chapel Hill was... uh, very critical of American strategy and military leadership during the Vietnam War. And it later served as a basis for your book, uh, Dereliction of Duty, which is still read very widely um, in uh, the US military and beyond. Would you say the major errors made in that war were political or military or both? You're very hard on LBJ, for example, saying... um, that uh, his his strategy was built largely on lies. Would you like to expand on that?
1: Andrew, it was both. It was both a political and a military failure. Uh, the responsibility was shared you know, by, from, by the president and his key civilian and military advisors. And the principal failure, I think, was one of character across the board in, in which Lyndon Johnson viewed Vietnam principally as a danger to his domestic political priorities. And what he wanted was a course of action in Vietnam that would allow him to escape a difficult choice between war and disengagement. And as a result, uh, the discourse around uh, around uh, Vietnam War decision-making masked the long-term costs and consequences. And in essence, we went to war, a war in Vietnam, without a strategy. Lyndon Johnson, of course, as president, could get the advice he wanted by by virtue of the people he appointed. But Robert McNamara, Secretary of Defense, and others determined that what they needed to do is give the president what he wanted in the form of a fundamentally flawed strategy of graduated pressure. The Joint Chiefs of Staff the military advisors for their part, they went along because they compromised principle for expediency. They thought if they just got the first bombing runs off, they just got the first troops introduced, they could argue over time for more resolute military action uh, and the amount of force necessary, they thought, to really shift uh, sh- shift the, the balance in favor of South Vietnam.
0: Is there a happier, a, a counterfactual kind of ending to the Vietnam War? What, what um, ought America to have done after the defeat of France in Indochina? Instead?
1: Well, I think really initially what America did do, which was the approach of helping the South Vietnamese defend themselves to strengthen the South Vietnamese government. It's important to note that, that the Eisenhower policy called Enhance Plus. To do that was quite successful, but as as you know, Andrew, you know, war is a continuous interaction of opposites. To quote Carl von Clausewitz, and that includes the interaction of you and your and your allies and partners with determined enemies. And in 1959, while ZM was the man of the year on Time Magazine because he had been so successful in South Vietnam, that's the same year of a communist party plenum in which Ho Chi Minh having consolidated power in the North, turned his gaze to the South and began to intensify his support for Vietnamese communists. And that's when uh, the South Vietnamese government and our forces began to lose ground. And it's then I think when the US response was inadequate because because the US response did not place politics and le- le- the legitimacy of the South Vietnamese government as the foundation for a comprehensive strategy. Instead, they focused on military activity and confused that activity with progress. And President Kennedy made a very poor decision by not stopping a military co- coup against Nozen Zin Diem in November of 1963, a-, a-, a coup that occurred just two weeks before Kennedy's assassination.
0: After your tremendously distinguished service in the Gulf War, you taught military history at West Point from... 1994 to 1996. What periods of history did you teach there, and and what do you think your students took away? What do you hope your students took away from your classes?
1: Well, Andrew, it's a it's a survey course. Right? It was a two semester course, and we jokingly referred to it as from Plato to NATO, and so it's a very broad range. But we, when I tried to to teach the course in the way that Sir Michael Howard, the great historian military historian, suggested that we all ought to study history broadly, but military history in particular in width, depth, and in context, in width to identify changes uh, and, and continuities over time, in depth to expose the complex causality of events, and in particular, the human factors that they're, and psychological and emotional factors, which are quite important to understanding battles and campaigns and wars. Uh, and then in context, in context of the, the political systems of the countries that they're waging war, the popular will. And so I, I, I think that's what we did at West Point. And I think, of course, as you know, with, with any uh, broad course like that, what you're doing is, is hoping that you kindle in, to, in those students uh, an intellectual curiosity about history, that they'll become lifelong learners of history. Maybe they'll learn to ask the right questions. And to be sensitive, for example, to both continuity as well as change.
0: And have you seen that in your students? I mean, have you have you watched their careers since and and seen uh, positive developments? I have,
1: and and I, th- I think what the study of history really helps you do is, is, is to learn how to think, how to think about complex problems. And of course, we as historians, we start with this. It's all about the question, how to ask those right questions, and then how to conduct a really multidisciplinary research, uh, and then to, to draw conclusions based on the evidence rather than, as is too often the case these days, to use some sort of a social science theory and then try to fit a complex situation into a theory which creates a veneer of understanding and a deceptive veneer of understanding.
0: I'm um, very pleased to hear that uh, Michael Howard was a uh, was a major influence on you. Um, I knew him well, and of course, um, his his books are still read in in great absolutely. numbers today. Um, and of course, he did also have that advantage of having won the Military Cross in Italy in 1944, and so having seen uh, seen the sort of um, the sharp side of of military history being made, essentially, absolutely. And I think he shared this this sort of
1: insight with Karl von Clausewitz, right? Went to war, I think, at the age of fourteen. So I, I think that uh, what Sir Michael uh, did for us is, is to help us uh, again understand how to ask the right questions, uh, and then in, instead of, instead of you know trying to, uh, to to reach just general conclusions, to write from the evidence. And you see this from you know his study of of, of the Franco-Prussian War to to even the more broader works of war, you know, such as War in European History but the the essay that i think you know maybe your listeners would benefit from reading is the use and abuse of military history which is the, the essay in which he talks about how to study history and the mistakes the military is making in peacetime forgetting what they're for and neglecting the continuities in the nature of war
0: in 2002, as commander of the first squadron of the fourth cavalry regiment, you were taken on a staff ride by a friend of mine, uh, Peter Caddick Adams, uh, following in the in the tank traps of Guderian tank tank tracks <laughs> of and, and Rommel in their Blitzkrieg attack of uh, of 1940. Peter believes that the nature of warfare hasn't fundamentally changed, just its tools. And um, how far would you go along with that? And do you find staff rides helpful, uh, for example?
1: Because Extremely helpful, and and the reason is because I you know, I, I do think that that war. Wars still resemble each other again, to quote Sir Michael again, more than they resemble any other human activity. Mm. And that's because of, I think, four fundamental continuities in the nature of war. You know, war is political. Well, of course, everybody knows that. Carl von Klaus said that. But what it means is you have to wage war in a way that allows you to consolidate gains and get to the sustainable political outcome consistent with what brought you into the war to begin with. Second, of course, war is human. People fight for the same reasons Thucydides identified 2,500 years ago fear, honor, and interest. And and during a staff ride, you can see how emotion and fear and sense of honor uh, helped helped determine the, the outcome. You know, The third is that war is uncertain because of this continuous interaction uh, of opposites between your forces and those of the enemy. And this is what allows you to, to gain the initiative, to gain a, a temporal advantage, an advantage associated with surprise. And this is, of course, the story of the campaign in, in 1940 and, and the collapse of France within six weeks. And then war is a contest of will. And you know, I'm thinking of the book Strange Defeat by Mark Bloch, in which... He describes the lack of French will and and sort of does an, an, an anatomy of of what caused the rapid collapse. So I because I think- they
0: actually had more more tanks, more artillery. Um- and more ammunition didn't they when the right. when the Germans invaded
1: and what they didn't have was more confidence and what they didn't have is a, a a clear concept of how they could defend effectively of course the you know the french had adopted you know by this time this idea of methodical battle the commander would be as they as they wrote about this in their doctrinal manuals at the handle of the fan you know carefully controlling military movements whereas the german Doctrine, again, based on what they learned from World War One, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll tell you, I, I think that there's a, a misunderstanding about uh, about military failures early in wars. You know the saying that, hey, the military is always ready to fight its last war. I actually believe that militaries who have difficulties early in a war are those who have studied the last or more or recent wars only superficially. And it was the German study of their own offensive in 1919, uh, in, in 19, uh, 1918. Uh, that um, you know, the, and and the failures of it, and what more needed to be done to be able to sustain an offensive, uh, and 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 introduction of really new technology that allowed them to do it—the radio, uh, the, the bomber, and the, and the tank—I uh, think that they learned from the last that last war the right lessons, whereas the French that they clung to this idea that the defense uh, was the strongest form of warfare. Hence the Maginot Line. The Maginot Line, yeah. and tanks that can only move at the speed of the boot, for example.
0: Yeah. And um and you write in, in your book, uh, your twenty twenty book, Battlegrounds, about cavalry using um battle drills based on Ernest Harmon, um and uh and what um what Guderian and, and Rommel were up to. Tell us more about that. It's a very interesting subject.
1: Well, it's, I, think it's, I think it's actually an exercise in humility to study history. right? Those, <laughs> those who think that they know everything, all they need is to know their own experience. I think that's quite an arrogant position to take. And of course, in war, the stakes are quite high; they're they're literally life and death. So it's very important to learn from the experiences of others. And this essay that I that I uh, that I used in preparation uh, for for our battle, uh, our fight in Desert Operation Desert Storm, was I think kind of a Rosetta Stone for desert warfare. These are General Ernest Harmon's notes on combat actions in Tunisia and North Africa, written to help the armies who were preparing to invade uh, on June sixth, uh, nineteen forty-four, across the English Channel, to prepare for fighting in the hedgerows and, and fighting across across Europe. Um, and 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 there are just brilliant insights uh, that I think were we we endeavored to apply to our training and how we prepared for for Operation Desert Storm
0: and you've actually written um in in your book uh, because the states stakes in war Involve life and death, as you've just said. Combat leaders who choose to learn exclusively from experience are irresponsible. That's a pretty tough stance to take.
1: Oh, I, I absolutely, absolutely believe it. Uh, and, and of course, you know, they're going to always learn new lessons, right? You know, the, the the character of warfare will change with the introduction of of new weapon systems. Sometimes there will be a, a form of technological surprise or tactical surprise or operational surprise that you have to you have to adapt to. So it's not as if History can give you the perfect plans, that, that history cannot, uh, can, cannot solve your problems. I, I like to think of the study of history as Clausewitz thought about the role of military theory. And on war, he says, you know, the, the, form, the formation, uh, you know, the, the maturing of, of a, your own theory of war is, is like an old professor, uh, the wisdom an old professor imparts to you. The professor doesn't accompany you to the battlefield to solve your problems for you, but he he or she has equipped you uh, to deal with the complex challenges you're facing.
0: What do you think um, the uh, 2014 Russian um annexation of ukraine and an attack in the east of that country uh could be learned from the 1973 yom kippur war for example
1: well i i think i think quite a bit i think in 1973 you had you know the 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 uh, the Israeli Defense Forces who had had a decisive victory uh, in 1967, and there's a great long essay, a monograph, the author's name escapes me, entitled "The Albatross of Decisive Victory," and in it he argues that the Israeli Defense Force had had become complacent uh, in in just those you know in just those uh, six years, and at the introduction of some new capabilities into the Egyptian forces, some air defense capabilities along with some anti tank weapons uh, and some quality. Qualitative changes in training and leader development and preparation caught the Israelis by by surprise. And so I think it's it's very important uh, to learn lessons from the past, but also to anticipate the future. The historian Carl Becker said it best in in a 1938 address that he gave to the American Historical Association, in which he said that memory of past and anticipation of future should walk hand in hand in a happy way without one disputing primacy over the other.
0: But the Israelis, of course, although they took a terrible thrashing over the first three to five days of uh, Yom Kippur, um, after that did, of course, come back, cross the uh, the Suez Canal, and and deal a devastating defeat on the Egyptian army. So, um, what uh, what's to be learned from that? Well, I think it, this has a lot to do with institutional
1: culture. The Israeli Defense Forces ha- are are you know the the Defense Forces of a democratic nation uh, and, and a meritocratic officer corps, and, and, uh, and the Israelis are not afraid of introspection and learning, uh, from failures and adapting quickly. Uh, a, a friend of mine, a, a, a doctor of history and a doctor of other, of other disciplines as well. Mayor Finkel wrote a great book on this, uh, about how organizations, military organizations recover from technological and tactical surprise. It's called on adaptability. He has a related book called On Flexibility. And I think it has a lot to do with institutional culture and uh, the the willingness to relinquish control and to conduct mission command. And then, of course, at the senior level for commanders, I think what distinguishes an effective uh, senior level commander, maybe more than any other factor, is that he or you know or she these days um, sees opportunities where others only see difficulties, and of course this is the best moment for the counterattack, right? What Klaus would's called the flashing sword of vengeance, which is the best moment for the defense. And you you don't identify that opportunity unless you're looking for opportunities even in the worst of circumstances.
0: From February 2017 until April 2018 you were the 25th national security advisor which meant you had 24 predecessors to uh, to learn from Tell us a little about the history of the NSA and which advisors I mean we've mentioned I think we've mentioned George Bundy already uh, earlier today um were the, were the were the best and who were the worst. Well, Andrew, I I think that you know it's important to note that that the National Security Advisor
1: position grew out of really just the strategic surprise of Pearl Harbor and the recognition that what was needed in the government, in the White House, was the ability to coordinate and integrate across the departments and agencies, to give the president best analysis, but also uh to, to tee up options for the president and assist with the sensible implementation uh, of, of his policies and, and, and decisions. And that role grew and changed. Changed and morphed based on the personalities of the of presidents and what they expected from the National Security Council Staff and the National Security Advisor. For example, Harry Truman was quite skeptical about it. Really, didn't pay any attention to the to the National Security Council staff until the Korean War, and then he met every week and saw the benefit of the need to mobilize all efforts across government in support of the war effort. Eisenhower was very happy with this kind of idea of almost a general staff, right where he could where he could rely on on a a staff officer, an extremely talented man named Andrew Goodpasture, to help to help him. Uh, in, in the discharge of his duties and make his decisions, Eisenhower was also quite good at hiding his hand, right, and and and, and encouraging debate uh,
0: among his advisors. And he'd been a chief of staff himself, of course. Um, with, Absolutely, uh, and that must have helped enormously
1: <laughs> for a very difficult personality uh, named <laughs> named MacArthur.
0: <laughs> yeah, no one would have wanted that uh, job, I daresay. <laughs> uh, in the conclusion of uh, of battlegrounds, you relate to. Uh, great story about how your uh, charming son-in-law, Lee Robinson, (laughs) saw you packing many more books than clothes or indeed anything else uh, as you were going off to become National Security Advisor. And you told him that, um, and I quote, an important first step to developing policy and strategy was to understand how the past produced the present. History for you was an avocation Would you like to say a few more words about that? I think it's very interesting. Sure, sure, Andrew. I, I think it's it's immensely important to you know to to
1: understand how the past produced the present, and especially the complex causality, and and to recognize that any sort of grounded projection into the near future will be imperfect, and therefore one has to has to prepare for. A range of possibilities, maybe even strategic shocks and and discontinuities to, to which one has to react. I, I'm very much taken by the analysis of Zachary Shore, a, gr- a great historian who's written a, a couple of books I think everybody should read. One of them is called Blunder, Why Smart People Make Bad Decisions, and he uses historical examples to show why otherwise smart people made bad decisions. Hey, one of the reasons is neglect of history, I think, and, and, and uh, he explains that well. And then in a book called A Sense of the Enemy, he talks about how we can Understand patterns of history, but we also need to learn from pattern breaks, you know, and 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 obviously try to anticipate pattern breaks. I think you know as, as we're as we're watching Ukrainians suffer tremendously uh, from the renewed invasion of Ukraine, that that obviously the, the first invasion of Ukraine was quite predictable based on the pattern breaks of Putin's behavior after he took over in the year 2000. In fact, he telegraphed his moves quite clearly by. poisoning a presidential candidate in 2003 and permanently disfiguring him in, in Ukraine denial of service attacks against Estonia in 2007, the invasion of Georgia in Georgia, 2008. Just go back to the, how about the Munich speech, really, where, where you really got, if anybody doubted that he had a worldview that was revanchist.
0: Well, you could go back earlier than that to show his ruthlessness, the way he treated his sailors on the Kursk, um, the, the right. whole um, uh, the false flag issues in Chechnya and sure. so on. I mean, this and, was... And, this,
1: and the subsequent mass murders in you know. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Right. absolutely. So, so um, from the beginning, we should have spotted that we had an an entirely different kind of ruthless uh, leader now in charge of a nuclear um, armed power and but
1: three american presidents in a row labored under the delusion Four, actually. No, three. <laughs> maybe President Biden is not no longer laboring under delusion, although he did in the beginning. Remember when George W. Bush looked into Putin's soul and then you had the reset uh, effort uh, under President Obama and him leaning over to Medvedev, who was keeping the seat warm uh, for Putin, saying, hey, I'll have more flexibility after the election and maybe just I'll trade off some air defenses for Poland in the hope that Putin would, would, uh, it would become a different person. Um, and then, of course, Donald Trump you know, thought that he could change Vladimir Putin and then President Biden granted a, uh, a, a, a meeting in, in Helsinki in, 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 which, uh, uh, in which he had hoped by explaining what the red lines were that Vladimir Putin would adhere to those. And of course, all four of those presidents were gravely disappointed.
0: This podcast, it's entitled Secrets of Statecraft. Are there any insights into the actual daily practice of statecraft at the very highest international level that you gleaned from your 13 months as national security advisor?
1: Andrew, I think those 13 months actually reinforced, I think, four fundamental uh, lessons I had learned from reading, researching and writing about how and why Vietnam became an American war. And you know, the, the first of these that we need to spend a heck of a lot more time thinking about the nature of the challenges and opportunities we we face internationally and apply design thinking and problem framing. And again, of course, understanding how the recent past produced the, the present circumstances. The second is, I think, is which is immensely important, uh, is to establish Goals and, and objectives, uh, but then also examine assumptions. Oftentimes, flawed strategies and policies rest on implicit and therefore unchallenged assumptions. The third, I, I think, is to is to recognize that it's always better to give multiple options. I mean, no, it's important to understand that nobody elected a national security advisor. You know, nobody elected a minister of defense or, or foreign affairs or or, or, or a secretary of state or, or defense. And and therefore, you owe it to the elected president to give those multiple options. And in comparing those options, you can draw out potential costs and consequences, relative advantages and disadvantages, the risks associated with it, and maybe potential mitigating uh, actions. Uh, And then finally, I think it's important to try to insulate national security decision making, foreign policy decision making from partisan political considerations. Knowing there'll be plenty of people will have a say about partisan political considerations. But if the process is infected by it, like it was uh, in deliberations about Vietnam, you could could have the situation as we did in Vietnam, where there was a sort of a contrived consensus around a fundamentally flawed strategy.
0: Um, you of course served under a notoriously mercurial, to put it at its kindest, um, president in Donald Trump. Um, do you think he understood those four major aspects of uh, of your job? Did he appreciate uh, those kind of pressures?
1: Andrew, I think maybe not fully, right? Uh, You know, President Trump's advantage was his ability to be disruptive because he came really not from a policy background. And I think many Americans who agreed that there was a lot that needed to be disrupted in Washington, those are the people who elected him. But uh, the disadvantage for him was he didn't really understand the roles we were all playing in this sort of Shakespearean drama, right, of of, uh, the Trump administration. But I do think that in the period of time in which I served, that he made very sound decisions and we were able to give him, uh, I think... Real best analysis and multiple options. Now, in the process of doing that, Andrew, I got kind of used up in the job, but I was at peace with that, right? I, I, I had well, learned- You came
0: under under sustained assault from Steve Bannon and lots of uh, other people who accused right. you of all sorts of things that you were very clearly not guilty of, it <laughs> struck me.
1: No, absolutely. Absolutely. So, and, and the reason for that, Andrew, was I was determined to give the elected president options. There are others in an administration who are there not to do that, but instead to manipulate decisions decisions consistent with their own agendas. And then there's a third group of people uh, that uh, I think define themselves in the role of saving the country and maybe the world from the president. I think the problem with that second and third group, if the first group is those who want to give the president options, uh, is, is that nobody elected them. They're actually not only doing the president a disservice, but they're undermining the constitution.
0: Do you think that, um, let's just look at those those four options uh, in particular in the um context of the Biden administration's um responsibility for trying to deal with this Ukraine Russo-Ukrainian war. What are the are there assumptions you think that um are uh, uh, broadly held in the Biden administration which are Incorrect about this um, about this situation. I, I do potentially now. What I've heard so far has been encouraging.
1: I was I was disappointed in the initial response to the marshalling of forces on Ukraine's border. Uh, that was really since August of last year when when Vladimir Putin uh, you know, he, he published this long essay, seven thousand word essay, in which he argued you know Ukraine doesn't have a right to exist. It really is just an, another part of, of Russia.
0: And actually, rather worryingly, uh, when you do read it, he also mentions Lithuania and a few than- Seventeen times,
1: Ab, abs, abs, absolutely. <laughs> so I, I think this—that's when we should have been flying in all the defensive capabilities. Now we're rushing to get in uh, as the war is is ongoing. I think it was a mistake to keep talking about what the heck we we're, we weren't going to do. You know, I mean, when does that make sense to to talk about that? You know, that we're not going to uh, deploy our advisors, the evacuation of our embassies, the the removal of our vessels from the Black Sea. I mean, it, it seemed almost as if we
0: were inadvertently greenlighting the invasion. But since that time, I've been encouraged. And the offer, of course, the the offer to, to fly Zelensky out, which he responded to so uh, memorably. <laughs> he said, "I
1: need, yeah, I need ammunition, not a ride, or I need mm-hmm. weapons, not a ride." And 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 so I I really I think that that now uh, there is, there is an opportunity. To improve our, you know, our strategic competence by learning from those early days, and and I hope what we've learned is, you know, there's no such thing as an off-ramp for Putin, Andrew. I mean, it, you know, people who talk about like leaving something for him and giving him an off-ramp. If we pay attention to history, recent history, we see that an off-ramp for Putin is just an opportunity to look for the next on ramp. And so rather than giving him an off ramp, I think we should be taping his foot to the pedal and helping him accelerate into the brick wall that he's
0: headed for. Um do you think you spoke earlier about giving lots of options to the to the president? Do you think that uh, um the national security advisor is giving lots of options to um to President Biden and if so what do you think they are?
1: Well, Andrew, I, I just I don't know. I I hope that he, I hope that he is. This is Jake Sullivan, the National Security Advisor. You know, I, I did put into place a, a much different process that it had, than, than the process that had been in place under the Obama administration. And I do know that my successor, because, you know, there were quite a few National Security Advisors under Trump,
0: you know,
1: <laughs> that, he, that, that he, he dismantled that uh, and then his successor, uh, you know, try try to resurrect it. So, so I hope that there is a process that involves what we put into place, which was a framing session. We preceded our discussions about what to do with a session that was aimed at just framing the challenge that we were facing. The first that was based on a five-page paper <laughs> that had you know five elements to it: the nature of the problem that we that we're facing, the inventory of our vital interests that were at stake, the overarching goal, and more specific objectives the assumptions, uh, and then finally, what we regarded to be the most significant obstacles to progress and opportunities that we could exploit through the integration of all elements of national power and efforts of like-minded partners. That framing discussion took 30 minutes. Do we agree or disagree? What do we need to change? And then the next 30 minutes were, what are your ideas about how to integrate all elements of national power and efforts of like-minded partners to overcome the obstacles and take advantage of the
0: opportunities? It, it strikes me that this isn't, I mean, these kind of, that aspect, that uh, approach isn't just confined, or doesn't need to be just confined to grand strategy and military strategy and so on. I mean, business strategy could take advantage of that approach, couldn't it? Absolutely. And, and you know what, what you often see in Washington
1: instead of this framing and sort of top-down guidance from the cabinet is an exclusively bottom-up process that begins with something as simple as Ukraine discuss, you know, and then you get a, you get these aimless discussions at various levels. And of course, from bottom up, you know, you're, you're susceptible to satisficing behavior and lowest common denominator approaches. And what you're left with, Andrew, most often is what I would call policy pablum. How would you define that? Sorry, it's just meaningless drivel. <laughs> when, you read, when, you read it, when you read it, you just think, "What the hell?" You know, is 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 the challenge we're trying to overcome? What are why do we care? Right? What are our what are our, our goals and
0: objectives? Um, You also, uh, when you talked about insulating the foreign policy um, from partisan political considerations, that does require a kind of bipartisanship, doesn't it? So you need one party at least to not take advantage, uh, deliberately not take advantage. Um, Can you see that in in modern American politics?
1: I can. And there are examples of it. I think in particular, the the shift that we were able to put into place, this is we being those who were serving the Trump administration during that first year year of his presidency, which which I think the biggest shift in US foreign policy since the end of the Cold War, which is an approach to China that was based on cooperation and engagement to an approach to China based on transparent competition and a recognition that the Chinese Communist Party, you know, again, one of these implicit assumptions was, you know, was not going to, as it prospered, liberalize its economy and liberalize its form of governance.
0: Which uh, national security advisors of the past do you look up to? Do you think are, are uh, really impressive people in the jobs they've held? Well, you,
1: I mentioned Andrew Pastor's role in really forming what we understand now as the National Security Council staff. Uh, I, I look at uh, others who were effective, in, including Henry Kissinger, Good. who was most effective at the relationship between the National Security Advisor and the Secretary of State. But of course, he had the unfair advantage of holding both those positions simultaneously yeah.
0: for a <laughs> fortunate <laughs> time. Yeah. That would have made your, your job a bit easier.
1: <laughs> it would have yeah. been. Yeah. Of, yeah. Co- of course, you know I, I, how can you not admire Condoleezza Rice? And 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 how she responded, uh, along with the the president's cabinet and and his team, President George W. Bush's team, uh, to 9/11, right? The most devastating terrorist attacks in history. Mm. I drew on, you know, I drew on on, on advice from Henry Kissinger. I, I talked with, of course, you know, this is maybe as my daughters would call hashtag predictable, Andrew, for <laughs> for a historian. But I asked the chief of staff as soon as I arrived, uh, as as you know quite unexpectedly in the White House, the day after I got hired, I started working there. And I didn't even live in Washington. Uh, I said, I would like to, in the next week, speak to every living national, former national security advisor, which I did. And I uh, took notes during this period of time. Brent Scowcroft is, is held up quite rightly uh, as, as the paragon, the example of the honest broker who ran an effective process. I spent you know an hour and a half with him and he was cl- very lucid. You know, he, was, he was sort of um, you know, beginning to have difficulties physically, but his mind was very sharp. Dr. Kissinger was, was very helpful to me. <laughs> he, he, uh, he and I t- spoke many times, but he was in Washington soon after I had arrived. And so in my barren office on day two, I got to sit down with Dr. Kissinger, after which he wrote me a letter which began with the line, you are walking a tightrope with chasms on both sides.
0: <laughs> That's what you want to hear, but but equally, absolutely right, as, uh, as, as was proved. I'm very pleased that you mentioned um, both of those people, actually, because we've had uh, Henry Kissinger on this, uh, on the show and, and, um, Secretary Rice is going to be coming on in a couple of weeks' time, so uh, so I'm I'm delighted that I managed to have got two of the three best uh, ones of your predecessors. Uh, now, this is a question we ask all um, uh, that I I ask everyone who comes on this show: uh, what history book are you reading, or what book are you reading? I'm hoping it's going to be a history book, needless to say. <laughs> but what uh, what book are you reading at the moment? Okay, I'm I'm reading two books because I never have j- only
1: one going at a time, and uh, and and I'm I've, I've just about to finish "How to Be a Dictator" by Frank Decoder. and and the subtitle is "The Cult of Personality in the 20th Century." Yeah. And he covers Hitler and Stalin and you know, uh, Kim Il Sung and and um, and uh, Ceausescu and and when you read it, you see sort of the mechanisms in place that people that the di- modern day dictators like Putin and Xi Jinping have put into place. So it's one of these works of history that illuminates the illuminates the present. It got wonderful reviews. Certainly,
0: it was really very high. It's excep- exceptionally
1: review. well done. As are- all his books, and if, if anyone has not read the Mal trilogy, that, those are phenomenal volumes. And he's about to finish a fourth volume that will take the history of the party up to about 2012, I believe.
0: He was a professor at Hong Kong University, yes. yeah, wasn't and, he? and still is, yeah. Andrew. Well,
1: probably in a quite a precarious position. I was about to say, imagine, let's yeah.
0: keep our, our, our fingers right. crossed for him there. Um, the second book, can I plug another of course, one here? Yes, of course
1: okay, so Michael Gordon's <laughs> Degrade and Destroy, which is the inside story of the war against the Islamic State. Michael Gordon is one of these investigative reporters who always takes the first best cut at history. And his previous books on the Gulf War, uh, his two books on Operation Iraqi Freedom, the the Iraq War after 2003, are superb. And this is a superb book as well.
0: And the other question I always ask is uh, counterfactual history. Um, What uh, sort of what-if moments do you like to look back on and, and wonder what might have been different?
1: Well, I, mean, I know you're nostalgic for the time when when uh, the Americas were British colonies. Ended, Isn't so. everyone? <laughs> <laughs> so I would have to say October of 1777. I know you know why I'm saying this because it's the, the Battle of yes. Saratoga and the and the surrender of Burgoyne's army uh, to to the uh, to, to the Continental Army, a portion of the Continental Army uh, who was fighting under under Horatio Gates, uh, and and I think what's important about that if, is, is without that victory, France. Would not have entered the war, yes. and I think many Americans. French are always there when they need you. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is we needed them. We needed exactly. them, and, yep, and yep, I think most Americans fair. probably don't know that without French support, financial support, as well as naval support and and support with, with, uh, with, by the French army, uh,
0: that it's unlikely that we would have been able to win the war. And because they did, they managed to uh, to crush the um, the British in. Uh, in America, which obviously led to two things. First of all, us having to build up a Bigger empire elsewhere, often at uh, the disadvantage of the French, and also, of course, the bankruptcy of the Bourbon court by 1789, which led to their um, overthrow and Louis XVI's eventual guillotining. So there is no good deed that goes unpunished. Well, and then also in the area of contingency, what, you know, there were others. There were, there were British leaders
1: who were who were advocating for this reason to abandon North America early, to grant the Americans their independence, to focus on on the global uh, war against. France. Lord Howe, for example, uh, was was making this this argument at the time, and and uh, and and I, I think that uh, uh, Frederick Wilhelm von Lossberg, who was the, the the Hessian commander in Massachusetts, also said hey, it's time to leave. Uh, because he he thought that after Saratoga, uh, that the land was too big. There's a long quotation from him. Their armies are too large. The land is too large. There's no way that we're going to be able to subjugate the people. And then, of course, the British then shift to the Southern strategy, which has some initial successes in Georgia, Virginia, South Carolina. Uh, But then the tide turns against the British army in the South with a very elusive uh, force, That combines militias and regulars. And then, of course, uh, that culminates at at the Battle of Yorktown.
0: And uh, also, of course, what the French... Uh, what happened when the French came into the war, and then the Spanish in 1779, and the Dutch in 1780 against Britain is it turned it into a global conflict where uh, they had to fight in Gibraltar and the West Indies, the Channel. There was a serious uh, in- invasion danger in 1779, and the West Indies. So um, all in all, uh, it uh, it completely transformed the the war. Um, Horatio Gates's victory at Saratoga. Absolutely. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much, um, HR. I've had an absolutely fascinating uh, uh, half hour or so, and I'm sure that our listeners will have too.
1: Andrew, what a pleasure to be with you. Thank you.
0: Thank you. Please join me on the next Secrets of Statecraft podcast when I'll be speaking to Professor Stephen Kotkin about his life in history and his Pulitzer Prize-winning biography of Joseph Stalin.